Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hello, I'm Julie Raymond. I'm AJC's Senior Director of Policy and Political Affairs. I'm thrilled to be here today as a guest host and to have Mark Melman with us. Mark Melman is one of the nation's leading political strategists, past president of the American Association of Political Consultants, CEO of the Melman Group, and most relevant for this conversation, he's the president and CEO of the Democratic Majority for Israel, which aims to be the voice of pro-Israel Democrats. AJC is a nonpartisan organization. We do not support or endorse political candidates or parties, but of course, as an advocacy organization, we like to get deep in the weeds on matters of policy. Today, we're talking about the recent debate in Congress over funding for Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. As our guest expert, I want to give you the floor right away. Can you give us, in a sort of 30-second soundbite, what happened last week in Congress regarding Iron Dome funding? Well, the main thing that happened is over 95% of Democrats and all but one Republican voted to give Israel $1 billion worth of replenishment of the Iron Dome battery. So at the end of the day, it was a complete and overwhelming victory for pro-Israel forces. Only eight Democrats voted against this measure. One Republican voted against this measure. How we got there was sort of a tortured road. The reality is there's a continuing resolution to keep the government open. The leadership decided to add the Iron Dome funding to that continuing resolution. The Republicans, every single Republican, said that they would vote, they would rather vote against Iron Dome funding. So every Republican was going to vote no. In a closely divided House, then a few of the far left members of the Democratic Party went to the leadership and said they too would vote against keeping the government open if Iron Dome funding was included. So in order to be able to get a clean vote on keeping the government running, the Iron Dome was separated. Iron Dome funding was separated from the continuing resolution with just continued government programs as they were previously. And a separate vote was set up on Iron Dome. And again, that vote overwhelmingly passed. Israel is getting $1 billion worth of replenishment to the Iron Dome defensive missile batteries. And we all breathe a deep sigh of relief over that. So we should, I think, spend a moment explaining to our audience about the other slightly more controversial piece of the continuing resolution, which caused this sort of numbers game in the Democratic Party, right? So the Republicans, by and large, were not concerned about the other provisions. They were concerned about the debt ceiling. Well, that's probably true. Debt ceiling is really a separate issue. In some ways, it's part of the continuing resolution. On the other hand, it's been part of past continuing resolutions. But the reality is there's a need to raise the debt ceiling so the United States government can pay its bills. The Republicans contend that this is about future programming. That's actually completely false. 98% of the debt ceiling increase would be paying off is debt that was incurred before President Biden became president. And 89% of it was incurred under what's required to raise this debt ceiling was incurred under uh, President Trump. I do think it's important to sort of explain to others that before there was a standalone vote on Iron Dome funding, it was part of this bigger package. And when someone's voting for against that bigger package, they have to consider lots of different factors. And sometimes that's not what's relayed in the media. 
That's exactly true. There are a lot of pieces to this, but basically it's about keeping the United States government running, whether that was through appropriations or through increasing the debt ceiling. Failure to increase the debt ceiling would mean the U.S. defaulted on its debt. It would stop paying its bills. So bottom line is these two things, they're two separate issues in a way, but they've come to one thing, which is about keeping the government running. Let's stick on the tortured road, I think, as you called it. There has been this common refrain amongst Democrats. I think I've even heard it from you. Since the members of the squad and others who are critical of Israel entered Congress, that essentially says, yeah, they're there, but they're few in number. They're junior. No one's really listening to them on this issue. And this debate about Iron Dome funding seems to sort of fly in the face of that assertion, right? These few in number were able to assert enough power to get House leadership to pull Iron Dome out of the continuing resolution and force the standalone vote. Have the dynamics really changed? No. The reason that, again, it goes back to this tortured road, it goes back to the Republicans, I dare say. But the reality is what we saw when the Iron Dome bill was a standalone bill, we saw all the Republicans but one, all the Democrats but eight vote for Iron Dome funding uh, and two Democrats that voted present. But when we saw it, what the small number of anti-Israel folks were able to do in the Congress was say, as long as we have an evenly divided Congress, just three, four seat margin for the Democrats. If the Republicans are willing to vote in the same way we are, then we can torpedo this continuing resolution. So they're playing on the fact that we have an evenly divided Congress. If they were influential on a policy level, we'd have more than eight Democrats voting against Iron Dome. They're not influential on a policy level. That's why we only had eight Democrats voting against Iron Dome funding. But what we had was because of Republicans lining up on one side and their willingness, let's put it this way, the willingness of those squad members to line up with the Republicans on this issue temporarily, then because of that work in the balance of power, they were able to exert some influence. But again, the fundamental reality is we have an evenly divided Congress and in an evenly divided Congress, any small group of people can be kings. The reality is any one, two or three people can exert complete control because the parties are so evenly balanced. It only takes a few to really gum up the works. So the squad has the power to gum up the works They don't have the power to change the policy. The policy is we're funding Iron Dome. The president was committed to that. And again, every Republican but one, every Democrat but eight voted for that Iron Dome funding. The reality is the squad was not influential in changing the policy. They were just influential in being able to gum up the procedural works. And that's only because of the even balance between Democrats and Republicans in the House. When we talk about the procedure, it sometimes becomes easy, I think, to distract ourselves or compartmentalize sort of the humanity that's at stake, right? Policies aren't just policies on paper. They impact lives in our country and around the world. And for a lot of those in the Jewish community, this vote felt really existential, right? There have been votes on Israel in the past, votes whether or not or how the U.S. should support this ever-elusive two-state solution, votes on how to address the BDS movement, which is deeply malicious, but not particularly threatening to Israel's economy in any real way at this point in time. This was a vote about providing Israel with defensive equipment to protect innocent civilians from terror. And many are drawing the conclusion, and I really want to know sort of what you think about this. They're drawing the conclusion that those who did not support Iron Dome funding 
don't support Israel's right to exist, don't support Israel's right to defend itself, or frankly, don't think the Jewish people are worth defending. What would you say to that? Is it fair? They're not necessarily wrong. Look, when Rashida Tlaib tweeted that she was going to vote no on Iron Dome funding, we tweeted back right away, people should make no mistake, voting no on Iron Dome funding is a vote to allow Hamas to attack schools and hospitals and homes and kill Israelis, Arabs and Jews alike. That's what it was. That's why it was seen as so important by the American Jewish community. That's also why every Democrat but eight and every Republican but one voted for it. Because at the end of the day, the vast majority of Americans, the vast majority of American elected officials do not want to allow Hamas terrorists to drop missiles and rockets on Israeli civilians. That's not what most people, the vast majority of Americans, the vast majority of members of Congress want. Are there a small group of members of Congress who seem to want that? The answer is yes. And I think it's impossible to be against Iron Dome replenishment and be called pro-Israel. It's possible for replenishing Iron Dome and still not be pro-Israel, but it's impossible to be against Iron Dome funding and be pro-Israel. They're not. The people who voted no on this, the Democrats, the Republicans, that voted no on Iron Dome funding are not pro-Israel. There's just no two ways around. Presumably, Iron Dome funding was included in the continuing resolution to avoid exactly what happened, to avoid a standalone vote. No, I don't think so. You think it was just political expediency, let's do everything, wrap it up in one bundle? Yes, there was not a particular fear, and for obvious reasons, there needn't have been a fear of having it as a standalone vote. Every vote in the Congress takes precious legislative time. So the more things that can be wrapped together, of which there's a limited amount, so the more things can be wrapped together that are not controversial, the better it is. I think people assumed the continuing resolution was going to pass. Why not get Iron Dome funding done on the calendar? Get it done as part of something that is going to pass. Didn't seem to be a problem. Obviously, there are a small number of Democrats that made it into a big problem, but I don't think it was in the CR, in the continuing resolution, to avoid a standalone vote standalone vote as soon as it was taken out when Mr. Lapid talked to Steny Hoyer, the majority leader in the House. Steny said he was going to put it on the floor as a separate vote. He did. And it was overwhelmingly passed, but it took precious legislative time. There were certainly some heroes in this situation, Steny Hoyer among them. What happens now with those eight Democrats I'll exclude the Republican. He's for the other party to handle. But what happens to those eight now? How does leadership sort of address them, deal with them now that they have, as you sort of described, like they've drawn a line in the sand. They are no longer to be considered pro-Israel. Well, you know, honestly, I never considered Rashida Tlaib to be terribly pro-Israel, nor did I consider Elon Omar to be pro-Israel, nor the other people that voted against the Iron Dome funding. So again, it's not a surprise that those eight people voted no. To me, it was not a surprise. It should never been a surprise to anybody. They are not pro-Israel. They've never been pro-Israel. They're not going to be pro-Israel. The question is, are their constituents going to continue to elect them? And I think the answer, frankly, is yes, for the most part, having nothing to do with their policies on Israel in most cases. I mean, Ilan Omar does not get elected in Minnesota because of her views on Israel. She gets elected, re-elected for other reasons. But she did win a primary overwhelmingly. She won the general election overwhelmingly. And in our political system, the local constituents get to decide who their member of Congress is. But, you know, the Democratic Majority for Israel, our PAC, the MFI PAC, has had a separate sister organization. But the MFI, I have to say that for legal reasons, it's true, but I have to say that. The MFI PAC has had some success in defeating 
these anti-Israel candidates. We just had one in Cleveland, Nina Turner, who would have probably joined these folks in voting no on Iron Dome funding. But we helped beat her and a candidate who defeated her in a primary, Chantel Brown, a strongly pro-Israel African-American woman. We prevented other people. There's a guy named Alex Morse in Massachusetts who probably would have been with this group. And again, Dimify PAC helped defeat him in a primary in Massachusetts, others across the country. The problem is we're going to be facing more primaries in the coming year from those kinds of people. There are more people who want to run with the squad. There are more people who want to vote against Israel's interest in the United States Congress. They're running in primaries. People haven't heard their names. They're not familiar with them. They know Ilan Omar. They know Rashida Tlaib. They know Betty McCollum from Minnesota, who's also actually voted for Iron Dome funding, but in general is a very anti-Israel individual member of Congress. People know those names. They don't know the names of the people that are just running for the first time, but could win these seats. People didn't know Cori Bush's name either when she was running for Congress. She's emerged as one of the people who voted against Iron Dome funding and has a history of vitriolic anti-Israel statements. So there are these folks, they're running. We've got to be able to stop them before they get to Congress. Once they get there, they're really hard to beat. But beating them before they get to Congress can be done, has to be done, but it takes real effort to do so. So for our listeners, you named a bunch of the the votes, but I want to sort of go down the list so that those who didn't follow as closely or never saw the list in front of them, so they know who voted against this Iron Dome funding. We're talking about, you mentioned Cori Bush from Missouri, Andre Carson from Indiana, Chuy Garcia from Illinois, Raul Grijalva of Arizona, Marie Newman of Illinois, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. There were two Democratic abstentions voting present, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Hank Johnson of Georgia. The Republican we've mentioned is Thomas Massey of Kentucky. He voted against the funding because he doesn't believe in foreign aid. I want to ask you two questions. One, were there any surprises? You mentioned Betty McCollum who voted for it. Betty McCollum has long had a bill to restrict aid to Israel. And so I think that her vote to support Iron Dome funding was a surprise to many. Were there any other Democratic votes that surprised you. And then secondarily, I want to ask you about the sort of Thomas Massey argument. His blanket statement, it's not about Israel, I just don't support foreign aid, seems to be, you know, it's a sort of a libertarian kind of, it's a specific niche Republican talking point. But I do wonder if Democrats who voted against this bill would be better off sort of saying, It's not that Israel shouldn't have Iron Dome. It's just a question of whether the United States should fund it. And I don't think I've heard that argument. I'm not trying to give them arguments, but it does make me sort of wonder. Well, to answer your first question, there were some other surprises. So, for example, Jamal Bowman, who defeated Elliot Engel in a primary, DMFI PAC actually worked against him and for Elliot Engel. But Jamal Bowman voted for the Iron Dome funding. And I think that was a wise move on his part. And we're certainly glad he did vote that way. There are others as well who were somewhat surprising in terms of their support for Iron Dome funding, who are not usually very supportive of Israel. But in terms of the argument, there were a number of Democrats who were against it, who said, look, this money should be used in America to feed. And people talked about the number of hungry children it would feed, the number of kids it would educate, the number of sick people that could be taken care of as a result, you know, with a billion dollars. It's a different kind of argument. They're not saying no foreign aid, but they're saying, Should we be spending a billion dollars on defensive weapons for Israel that Israel might be able to afford on its own? Or should we be spending that money here at home to take care of poor and indigent people? And that's an argument. 
But again, we're talking a billion dollars is it's a lot of money. But in the scope of the United States budget, it's not a huge amount of money. And the United States and Israel co-developed the Iron Dome. It was Israeli technology and Israeli know-how. The United States uses that Iron Dome for its own defense, had it at the airport in Kabul to protect Americans leaving Afghanistan. But the reality is there was a deal made, and the deal was Israel provides the know-how and America provides the money. So we had an obligation to really provide the money, even though that money could well have been used for other purposes. But the same thing applies to the argument that Massey made. You know, yes, you can be against foreign aid, but this was really part of a deal, part of an agreement, part of an understanding that America would get something and Israel would get something. And both parties need to keep their part of the deal. Absolutely. Thank you for that. That's very helpful. I have two questions. And one is a little bit inside baseball, inside the Beltway. Oh, we've been deep inside the Beltway here. (laughs) It's hard to escape. You talked before about the numbers game. Anyone can be king, right? In this particular debate, the squad, the progressives, the justice Democrats were the kings, right? But going back to the debt ceiling, there were some centrist Democrats, Blue Dogs and others, who were deeply fiscally conservative, who felt like they had been forced to make a hard vote too. And they didn't get that gimme from leadership. We're having a big debate now about the infrastructure bill and about the reconciliation bill, the human infrastructure. There are some of those conservative and moderate Democrats that are uncomfortable with the size and scope of the reconciliation bill. There's less discomfort with the, uh, much less discomfort, none, I would say, with the infrastructure bill. But the reality is that those folks are flexing their muscles. And it's generally acknowledged today that we're not going to have a $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, human infrastructure package. It's going to be less than that. And it's going to be less than that because a relatively small group of Democrats flexed their muscle and said, we're not going to go along with this. And at the end of the day, the whole thing may fall apart. We don't know that yet. We'll start to get a sense of it later this week because the infrastructure bill is supposed to be voted on. But the reality is, if people care enough about their issue, they can really gum up the works here and the legislative works in a significant way. And that's true for the moderates. It's true for the conservative. It's true for the far left. Let's step back just a little bit for this final question. Thinking about the ever-changing political dynamics, if we could get in our spaceship and fast forward a decade, What's the Democratic Party that we would see talking about sort of the issues of concern to the Jewish community, Israel, et cetera? Well, that's a great question to which I don't know the answer. I'm descended from prophets, but I was not endowed with a gift. So it's hard for me to tell you what things are going to look like 10 years from now. I would say there honestly is a struggle going on. And the outcome of that struggle will depend what we see 10 years from now. Democratic majority for Israel. Others are trying to make sure that the Democratic Party remains pro-Israel. We're trying to lead that effort. It's a very difficult effort. It's a challenging effort, but we're making a lot of progress. And you see that in the votes, you see that in the races around the country. If we're able to continue on that track, I think we'll see 10 years from now, Democratic Party that is as pro-Israel as the Democratic Party is today. But if we lose that battle in a significant way, we could well see a very different Democratic Party that is much more hostile to Israel. But it's not all about what happens here. Part of the issue is what happens in Israel. And I've said this publicly, I'll say it again. If Israel abandons the two-state solution as a matter of principle, it's one thing to say is the government's saying now it's not within reach at the moment. But if Israel says we're no longer interested in a two-state solution, I think that in two years, four years, the Democratic Party will look like the Labor Party under Jeremy Corbyn, and the Republican Party in 10 years will look like the Democratic Party does today. 
because that is not a position that is sustainable in the American public. We can agree with it, we can disagree with it, but the reality is abandoning the notion of a two-state solution is not sustainable among Democrats. It's not sustainable among Republicans. Now, I don't think the Israel government's going to do that, but it is possible. And if they did that, it would have serious repercussions here, no matter what else that the American Jewish Committee, Democratic Majority for Israel, no matter what anyone else is doing in this country, the reality is those such actions by Israel would have a very negative consequence. The stakes are high, but I hope that our listeners agree that it's been deeply important as we look at the future of pro-Israel America within the Democratic Party, within Congress. And we couldn't have asked for a more prophetic voice. (laughs) Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us, Mark. We appreciate it very much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Julie, I read an article recently where a mother compared facing COVID to staring out at the ocean and hearing assurances like, oh, don't worry, only 1% of the children are going to get eaten by the shark. And that comparison really resonated with me because my son has been obsessed lately with two things on television, baseball and National Geographic shows about shark attacks. I mean, if it's not the Yankees, it's sharks on television. Every week is Shark Week in our house. But that's been true ever since the start of the pandemic. Absolutely. And when it's so funny that you say that because not so long ago, my family went to the beach. And mm. I I should say, as a child, my parents forced me to watch Jaws at way too early of an age. So I always <laughs> had this fear of sharks. And I was looking out as my five-year-old and three-year-old were sort of playing in the water and thinking about all the conditions that make water ripe for shark attacks, right? Like there's sandbars, mm-hmm. the tide is low, it's morning or dusk or all of these things. And I'm, I have this like growing panic. And all I could think about was like, this is just like the pandemic, right? So often the parents are holding the fear of the family, right? Like we don't want to tell mm-hmm. them, oh, there could be sharks in the water. Oh, be afraid of air, But like, those are the things that are constantly in our minds and we're carrying that burden. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the risk of sending our children to school or dance class are very real, especially if masks are optional in those settings. I mean, my children, both of them are really very good about wearing masks. But yeah, you're right. I I don't want to instill this fear of breathing fresh air (laughs) that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. But right now, it's important. It's important for them to protect themselves. And while the symptoms aren't as severe for children, there's at least one study that's shown they do have lingering effects. I continue to be amazed by the progress Israel has made on the science of this. They seem, frankly, light years ahead of us. (laughs) And this issue is no different. It was a recent Israeli study that looked at more than 13,000 children and found that 11% 11% of those infected showed lingering symptoms, breathing troubles, fatigue, brain fog. You know, the symptoms you and I suffer as moms all the time, <laughs> that children should not have to face those symptoms, those issues. Then again, Israel's health ministry has pointed out that Israeli children are also dealing with long-term effects of prolonged lockdowns and constant school closures, the stresses of sporadic rockets fired from Gaza. These have effects on children as well, of course. Mm, It's too much. Yeah. 
Well, to protect Israeli children and the rest of Israel's society, I was also quite impressed that the Israeli government required home antigen COVID tests this week for parents to administer at home before their children return to school. You know, there's this, we've just finished a recent spate of Jewish holidays. And so in Israel, the students were out of school and 90% of parents complied with this requirement. And that blew my mind. I mean, such a requirement and such compliance would be unheard of here. Just unheard of. I mean, you know better than anyone, Julie. No one in Washington seems to realize they're on the same team when it comes to fighting this issue, right? It's funny that you said it in that way, right, about being on the same team. Because this Mm. week, Congress played the congressional baseball game, Mm. which since 1909, a very historic event, it's generally been this great spirit-building charity fundraising event. But there was heavy criticism this time because, as you know, a government shutdown is looming. So while people's financial security and some essential government services are sort of hanging in the balance, it's not a great look when the members of Congress are putting time and energy into determining which party can take home a trophy. Right. The metaphor of, like, taking it outside is just a little bit too apt. Um, For anyone who missed it, the Republicans beat the Democrats 13 to 12. It was very close. At least it was close. It's always just a little too close, right? (laughs) And sort of extending this metaphor, I read a press report where California Representative Eric Swalwell compared the baseball game to the Olympics, right? Where countries from all over come together to, to celebrate sports. He was arguing against politics being a part of the game, but his metaphor shows the problem, right? It's not many countries coming together. It's Americans of different political persuasions. In fact, it's the very people who are represent who are representing all Americans coming together. Right. One country. One country. We're all on the same team here, or so we're supposed to be. So it reminded me of another congressional sporting event. Yes, there are more than one. This one is a little bit lesser known. Since 2004, there's been a congressional football game. And it was started to honor and support the Capitol Police officers and to fundraise for the families of fallen officers. And it happens every two years. And the teams are different. It's not Republicans versus Democrats. It's Republicans and Democratic members of Congress together playing against the Capitol Police. And it's always been sort of this really cool bringing together of like, you know, the protectors and the protected and all of that. But especially after the January 6th insurrection, the relationship is just so poignant and so important. So there's all of that sort of meaning behind it, but just the simple fact that every morning in preparation, the Republicans and the Democrats are out practicing together instead of on their own separate practice fields, and being on the same team is so important. And there aren't opportunities like that anymore. It used to be in years past that Republicans and Democrats were together all the time, right? Until the 1990s, when a member of Congress was elected to Congress, they would move their families. Their kids would enroll in D.C. schools. Their families would come together. There would be all this, like, amazing interaction, and it didn't really matter the party. But that changed. 
the Speaker of the House at the time, Newt Gingrich, changed the voting schedule so that members would only vote for a couple days in the very middle of the week to free up the weekends so that they could go back home to their districts. And the idea was that they would be better serving their constituents. They'd be better in touch with the needs of their constituents. But the end result, it was sort of a double-edged sword. Like, that happened, but then the families didn't move to Washington. They all stayed back. Kids didn't play together. Spouses didn't convene. And that sense of, like, bipartisanship and camaraderie totally went away. So then fast forward to today, right? Like going back to the pandemic and the effects of the pandemic. Now there's not so much in-person interaction. Bipartisan congressional travel, which was sort of one of the last grand vestiges of bipartisanship, isn't happening. And so there aren't those opportunities to interact. That is fascinating. It's different. It's really different. And so, like, you know, we talked to Mark Melman and he was talking about parties gumming up the process, right? Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. all these procedural mechanisms that were meant to be originally stopgap measures, but are now sort of the norm because the bipartisanship, the consensus building is now not happening. And what we really need is these opportunities for the parties literally and figuratively to get back on the same team. Yeah. Has there been any talk? I mean, I like the idea of the legislators being close to their constituents, but has there been any talk of returning it back to a Washington-based operation? No, you know, and I don't don't think at this point it ever would, you know, especially now because air travel is so much easier, right? Like at that Mm. point, it wasn't so cheap and easy for someone to fly to Washington from Washington twice a week to, you know, California or Nebraska or wherever. But now it's all too simple. So Mm -hmm. it really Mm -hmm. does create this need to find other avenues. And in part, that's why AJC strives regularly to create bipartisanship conversations. So through Advocacy Anywhere programs or through discussions happening throughout the country, we try to bring Republicans and Democrats together. And, you know, they don't often say it publicly. It's not usually a part of the program. But inevitably, before or after, you know, as we're sort of setting up and convening in the Zoom, they say, wow, this is so nice. You know, I really like this colleague from the other side. But huh, weird. We haven't talked in weeks or we haven't talked in months. We never have the opportunity. So just Mm -hmm. those simple things to like get people talking again, it can it can make a real difference. Well, I really, really hope that this pandemic ends soon and that bipartisanship resumes and politicians compromise together again. So I guess at the end, we're all just looking for fewer sharks, right? That's right. Well put, Julie. Well, thank you so much for co-hosting with me this week and Shabbat Shalom. It's been my pleasure, Manya. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom to everyone. Tune in to People of the Pod next week when we talk to Amy Spitalnik, leader of Integrity for America. Amy explains the effort to sue white supremacists who participated in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville four years ago. You can join Integrity for America's United Against Nazis event at ifa.org at 7.30 p.m. on September 30th. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. 
The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.